In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents Born on the Fourth of July. The runway rushed up at him As he felt the wheels touch down He stood out on the blacktop And took a taxi into town He got out down on Main Street and went into a local bar He bought a drink and found a seat In a corner in the dark Well, she called up her mama To make sure the kids were out of the house She checked herself out in the dining room mirror And undid an extra button on her blouse He felt her line next him and the clock said 4 a.m. He was staring at the ceiling, he couldn't move his hands. Oh, mama, 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 come quick. I got the shakes and I'm gonna be sick. Throw your arms around me in the cold, dark night. Hey, now, mama, don't shut out the light. Don't you shut out the light. Don't you shut out the light. Don't you shut out the light, don't you shut out the light Well, on this porch stretched up Hello and welcome to episode 89 of In Country, the podcast that is taking a complete look at the Marvel Comics series The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. And this time around, I am taking a break from my usual Nom coverage and bringing you yet another look at a work about the Vietnam War, which is born on the 4th of July. Over the course of this episode, I am going to be talking about the 1989's Oliver Stone film and its source material, which is Ron Kovic's 1976 autobiography. I'm also going to spend a little bit of time talking about another film that was directly inspired by Kovic's book and his experiences, which is the 1978 Hal Ashby film, Coming Home. All three of these are about a veteran returning home from the Vietnam War with both physical and mental injuries and finding that his recovery from experience in the war is in some cases just as difficult as the war itself. Kovic's book, which was written in 1974 and published in 1976, was a landmark bestseller, The Reflections of a Veteran Who Had Become and Has Remained a Fervent Anti-War Protester. Kovic was born on July 4, 1946, and was raised in Massapequa, New York, the son of a World War II veteran and his wife. And I think that is worth noting, not just because the title Born on the Fourth of July rings completely true, and in this regard is not just a reference to the George M. Cohen song Yankee Doodle Dandy, but because I think Kovic is what we would consider very typical of the baby boomer generation, at least on some level. Granted, I only maybe I only think this because my own father was the son of a World War II veteran, and after he returned from the war and Brooklyn was getting too crowded and too hard to live in, my grandfather moved his family out to the Long Island town of New Hyde Park. But knowing the history of post-war Long Island and how the suburbs grew exponentially through the 1940s and the 1950s, I think it is worth noting Kovic's typicalness when talking about his background. That background, by the way, includes his enlisting in the Marine Corps in 1964 after turning 18, having been inspired by the message of service instilled by President Kennedy a few years prior. Kovic served two tours in Vietnam until he was shot and paralyzed from the waist down. He eventually wrote the book I'm talking about, and in order to get into the background on that, I thought his own words might be best, so here is Kovic's introduction to the 2005 edition of his own book, and while it's not a complete summary of the autobiography, I think it's a very good introduction. I will say, however, just as a warning to anybody who is listening, uh, Kovic does get political here, especially uh, with regard to his opposition to the war in Iraq, which had begun two years prior. I usually don't get very political on this show, but these are Kovic's own words in his own book, so I thought that um, that would still be appropriate for the context uh, that we're looking at, considering he is not an obscure character when it comes to looking at the history of Vietnam and the pop culture surrounding the Vietnam War. So if you are triggered by things such as anti-war speech and criticism of the government, please feel free to skip ahead a few minutes. So here are Kovic's words in his introduction to his 2005 
edition of Born on the Fourth of July. It was exactly 40 years ago this past September that I left my house in Massapequa, New York to join the United States Marine Corps and begin an extraordinary journey that was to lead me into a disastrous war which would change my life and others of my generation profoundly and forever. There are times in the lives of both individuals and nations when we cross certain thresholds where there is no going back, no return to the innocence we once knew, the change is utter and irreconcilable. We often sense these moments. I know I did that day. I can still remember leaving my house that morning, saying goodbye to my mother, my father driving me down to the Long Island Railroad Station with only a few words being said between us. Dad was always that way. And then that long and contemplative ride into the city, being sworn in at Whitehall Street, holding my right hand up proudly with all the other young men, taking the oath of enlistment and swearing our allegiance to the Constitution of the United States. The fall of 1964, September 2nd, a lifetime ago. That last bright and beautiful morning when everything was to change forever, that last moment of lighthearted innocence of youth, of Massapequa in the backyard before the shock, the chaos, and the deluge. I had just turned 18 that summer, and there are some old black and white photographs of me from those days. It's amazing that I still have them, considering I have misplaced them many times over the years, thinking them lost forever, only to later find them in some unexpected place, like a deeply disturbing dream that I have been trying to repress. I remember seeing those photos on several occasions after I came home from Vietnam, and each time having terrible nightmares that shook me badly. I couldn't look at them, could not face the young man I had been before the war and my injury. I would always promise myself to never look at them again. My trauma was still very deep, and my, that beautiful boy, that body, had been destroyed, defiled, and savaged. My wounding in Vietnam, both personally and emotionally, haunted me, pursued me, and threatened to overwhelm me. I rode up born on the 4th of July in the fall of 1974 in one month, three weeks, and two days. It was like an explosion, a dam bursting. Everything followed, flowed beautifully and just kept pouring out almost effortlessly, passionately, desperately. I worked with an intensity and fury as if it was my last will and testament, and in many ways it felt it was. I continued to suffer from nightmares, constant anxiety attacks, severe heart palpitations, and a powerful, almost obsessive feeling that I would not live past my 30th birthday. I was living each day as if it were my last, as if everything had been compressed together by the war, and now every second counted. I wrote all night long, seven days a week, single space, no paragraphs, front and back on the pages, pounding the keys so hard the tips of my fingers would hurt. I couldn't stop writing, and I remember feeling more alive than I had ever felt. Convinced that I was destined to die young, I struggled to leave something of meaning behind, to rise above the darkness and despair. I wanted people to understand. I wanted to share with them as nakedly and openly and intimately as possible what I had gone through, what I endured. I wanted them to know what it really meant to be in a war, to be shot and wounded, to be fighting for my life on the intensive care ward, not the myth we had grown up believing. I wanted people to know about the hospitals and the enema room, about why I had become opposed to the war, why I had grown more and more committed to peace and nonviolence. I had been beaten by police and arrested 12 times for protesting the war, and I had spent many nights in jail in my wheelchair. I had been called a communist and a traitor simply for trying to tell the truth about what had happened in that war, but I refused to be intimidated. I loved the night and I would write for hours as if no time had passed at all. I was exhausted and my back ached, but none of that seemed to matter. I felt wonderful inside, tired but completely consumed by my writing. I would drink a couple of cups of coffee and then with a new surge of energy work for another hour or so as the bright lights of the morning began to fill the room. I'd neatly stick all the pages next to the typewriter after handing them holding them proudly in my hands, then go to my bedroom and transfer out of my wheelchair onto a mattress on the floor. I remember thinking to myself one morning that if I died in my sleep, someone would come into the apartment and find those pages next to the typewriter and know that I was not a victim, but someone who had been trying to move beyond his terrible tragedy and the terrible injustice of that war. With the exception of that initial burst of writing and rare moment of stability in Santa Monica in the fall of 1974, I continued to be extremely restless back then, frank frantically moving from one place to the next, living on the edge, racing in cabs to the airport, flying from city to city on my monthly compensation check, 
suddenly showing up at friends' houses in the middle of the night and sleeping on their couches, always carrying the manuscript with me and always frightened, desperately needing to escape the demons that were closing in on me. Over the next year and a half, I wrote several additional chapters of Born on the Fourth of July. Some of the stories were ones I had told my mother when I first came home from the hospital and would lay on our couch in the living room when I couldn't sleep, which was often back then. Night after night, I would repeat the story of how I was wounded that day in Vietnam, describing every single detail. My dear mother would sit patiently in her chair, listening to her son who had come home paralyzed from the war, trying her best to understand. I attempted to write at my friend's place in Mohegan Lake in their laundry room, but couldn't seem to get started. I wrote most of the chapter about my childhood at a little hotel not far from Spruill Plaza in Berkeley, and the ambush chapter, the most painful one, but one of the best, at Connie's apartment in L.A. I wrote the Memorial Day chapter one afternoon in San Francisco at the Sam Wong Hotel on Broadway, just down the street from Enrico's Cafe in North Beach. I can still remember the open window of my hotel room and the noise of passing cars and trucks in the street below, the fumes, the honking horns, but that became a very beautiful chapter and I still enjoy reading it to this day. I dictated the very first page of the first chapter to my friend Roger at the, ho at the Chateau Marmont Hotel in Hollywood and the remainder of the chapter up in Mendocino where he and Mary were living at the time. I had driven all the way up in a used car I had just bought in L.A. and later abandoned in their driveway. It was deep in the woods, quiet and peaceful, so very different from the war and hospitals and all that I had been through. The air was fresh, and there was a pond behind their cottage where I dictated to Roger, and I remember feeling exhausted as he held me in his arms and I began to cry in the midst of all that stillness. It was a painful but beautiful birth. I am extremely grateful to Akashic Books and its publisher, Johnny Temple, for bringing out this new edition of Born on the Fourth of July at such a crucial moment in our nation's history. For the past two years, we've been involved in a tragic and senseless war in Iraq. As of this writing, over 1,500 Americans have died and more than 11,000 have been wounded, while tens of thousands of innocent Iraqi civilians, many of them women of children, have been killed. I have watched in horror as the mirror image of another Vietnam unfolding. So many similarities, so many things said that remind me of that war 30 years ago, which left me paralyzed for the rest of my life. Refusing to learn from our experiences in Vietnam, our government continues to pursue a policy of deception, distortion, manipulation, and denial, doing everything it can to hide from the American people their true intentions and agenda in Iraq. The flag-draped caskets of our dead begin their long, sorrowful journeys home, hidden from public view, while the Iraqi casualties are not even considered worth counting. Some estimate as many as 100,000 have been killed so far. The paraplegics, amputees, burn victims, the blinded and maimed, shocked and stunned, brain-damaged and psychologically stressed now fill our veterans' hospitals. Most of them were not even born when I came home wounded to the Bronx VA hospital in 1968. The same life-saving medical evacuation procedures that kept me alive in Vietnam are bringing home a whole new generation of severely maimed from Iraq. Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, which afflicted so many of us after Vietnam, is now just beginning to appear among soldiers recently returned from the current war. For some, the agony and suffering, the sleepless nights, anxiety attacks, and awful bouts of insomnia, loneliness, alienation, anger, and rage will last for decades, if not their whole lives. They will be trapped in a permanent nightmare of that war, of killing another man, a child, watching a friend die, fighting against an enemy that can never be seen, while at any moment someone, a child, a woman, an old man, anyone, might kill you. These traumas return home with us and we carry them, sometimes hidden, for agonizing decades. They deeply impact our daily lives and the lives of those closest to us. To kill another human being, to take another life out of this world and pull, and with one pull of a trigger, is something that never leaves you. It is as if a part of you dies with them. If you choose to keep on living, there may be a healing and even hope and happiness again, but that scar and memory and sorrow will be with you forever. Some of these veterans are showing up at homeless shelters around our country, while others have begun to courageously speak out against the senseless and insanity of this war and the leaders who sent them there. During the 2004 Democratic Convention, returning soldiers from a group called Iraq Veterans Against the War, just as we marched in Miami in August of 1972 as Vietnam Veterans Against the War. Still others have refused deployment to Iraq, gone to Canada, and begun resisting this immoral and illegal war. 
For months leading up to the evasions of Iraq, citizens here in the United States and around the world marched and demonstrated in our growing opposition to our government's reckless plan to launch an attack. I proudly participated in protests in Los Angeles, San Francisco, and Washington, D.C., doing countless interviews and speaking out wherever people would listen to me. Many prominent world leaders, including Nelson Mandela and Pope John Paul II, began to raise their voices against the terrible, ill-fated foreign policy. The extraordinary opposition culminated on February 15, 2003, when more than 30 million citizens and over 100 nations participated in the most massive demonstration on behalf of peace in the history of the world. Never before had so many human beings come together before a war and had even begun to say no to the insanity and madness. Many of us promised ourselves long ago that we would never allow what happened to us in Vietnam to happen again. We had an obligation, a responsibility as citizens, as Americans, as human beings to raise our voices in protest. We could never forget the hospitals, the intensive care wards, the wounded all around us fighting for our lives. Those long and painful years after we came home, those lonely nights. There were lives to save on both sides, young men and women who would be disfigured and maimed, mothers and fathers who would lose their sons and daughters, wives and loved ones who would suffer for decades to come if we do not do everything we could to stop the forward momentum of this madness. We sensed it very early and very quickly. We saw the same destructive patterns reasserting themselves all over again as our leaders spoke of, quote, bad guys and, quote, evildoers, imminent threats and mushroom clouds attempting to frighten and intimidate the American people into supporting their agenda. The Bush administration seems to have learned some very different lessons than we did from Vietnam, where we learned of the deep immorality and obscenity of that war, they learned to be even more brutal, more violent and ruthless, i.e. shock and awe. Sadly, the war on terror has become a war of terror, where we learn to be more open and honest, to be more truthful, to expose, to express, to shatter the myths of the past, They seem to have learned the exact opposite, to hide, to censor, to fabricate, to mislead, and to deceive, to perpetuate those myths. Instead of being intimidated or frightened, many of us become more outraged and more determined than ever to stop these ignorant, arrogant men and women who never saw the things we saw, never had to grieve over the loss of their bodies or the bodies of their sons and daughters, never had to watch as so many friends and fellow veterans were destroyed by alcoholism and drugs, homelessness, imprisonment, neglect and rejection, torture, abandonment and betrayal in the painful aftermath of the war. These leaders have never experienced the tears, the dread and rage, the feeling that there is no God, no country, nothing but the wound, the horrifying memories, the shock, the guilt, the shame, the terrible injustice that took the lives of more than 58,000 Americans and over 2 million Vietnamese. We had to act we had to speak. I am no longer the 28-year-old man, six years returned from the war in Vietnam, who sat behind that typewriter in Santa Monica in the fall of 1974. I am nearly 60 now. My hair and beard are almost completely white. The nightmares and anxiety attacks have all but disappeared, but I still do not sleep well at night. I toss and turn increasing physical pain, but I remain very positive and optimistic. I am still determined to rise above all of this. I know my pain and the horrors of my past will always be with me, but perhaps not with the same force and fury of those early years after the war. I have learned to forgive my enemies and forgive myself. It has been very difficult to heal from the war while living in America, and I've often dreamed of moving to neutral ground, another country. Yet I have somehow made a certain peace, even in a nation that so often still seems to believe in war and use the violence as a solution to its problems. There has been a reckoning, a renewal. The scar will always be there, a living reminder of that war, but it has also become something beautiful now, something of faith and hope and love. I have been given an opportunity to move through that dark night of the soul to a new shore, to gain an understanding, a knowledge, an entirely different vision. I now believe I have suffered for a reason, and in many ways I have found that reason in my commitment to peace and nonviolence. My life has been a blessing in disguise, even with the pain and great difficulty that my physical disability continues to bring. It is a blessing to be able to speak on behalf of peace to be able to reach such a great number of people. I saw firsthand what our government's terrible policy had wrought. I endured. I survived and understood. The one gift I was given in that war was an awakening. I became a messenger, a living symbol, an example, a man who learned that love and forgiveness are more powerful than hatred, who has learned to embrace all men 
and women as my brothers and sisters. No one will ever again be my enemy, no one, no matter how hard they try to frighten and intimidate me. No government will ever teach me to hate another human being. I have been given the task of lighting a lantern, ringing a bell, shouting from the highest rooftops, warning the American people and citizens everywhere of the deep immorality and utter wrongness of this approach to solving our problems, pleading for an alternative to this chaos and madness, this insanity and brutality. We must change course. I truly feel that this beautiful world has given me back so much more than it has taken from me. So many others that I knew are gone, and gone way too young. I am grateful to be alive after all these years and all that I've been through. I am thankful for every day. Life is so precious. And that was Ron Kovic writing in Redondo Beach, California in March 2005. And really, the book itself does encapsulate the mission he states in his introduction, although since the book was originally published in the mid-70s and not the mid-2000s, the focus is obviously on the Vietnam War, Kovic vividly describes his experience as signing up for being injured and dealing with his recovery from those injuries as well as being home again. However, it does not go chronologically and instead begins, as our, as us English teachers like to say, in medias res, right at the moment where Kovic's life irrevocably changed, which is his final days in Vietnam. This is where he is shot and paralyzed. We then move from the battlefield to the hospital where he's being cared for and then to New York where he realizes that he has lost the use of his legs. He then starts to attend therapy while he's receiving commendations for bravery and service and his parents do visit him in the hospital and he tends to not let them in on all of the details which include having a catheter and being completely physically sexually dysfunctional, something he compensates with by having very illicit dreams. We then flash all the way back to his childhood on Long Island and how he comes to sign up for the war. He notes that his birthday always made him feel a foundational connection to the country and that he knew early on that he was destined for life as an athlete or a soldier. We then get some other details about his time in Vietnam, which includes being in a Memorial Day parade and eventually meeting other veterans who have been injured. He also becomes appalled by the treatment of veterans who are coming home and speaking out about his treatment and against the war. He speaks to high school students and also marches in a number of rallies and other protests. He eventually moves to California with a childhood friend of his and joins Vietnam veterans against the war, which puts him in the spotlight and leads to him becoming a well-known activist. The book ends with images from his childhood that are happy, and he talks about how it took him a long time to break out of the mindset that led him to sign up for the war and realized how misled he had been. Now, Kovic's book is important because it's really one of the first memoirs like this about Vietnam, or at least one of the first that got a significant amount of attention after the war had ended. We, of course, have seen memoirs and biographies since of Vietnam vets, as well as vets from other wars that are novels, and there are novels and other books about soldiers in wars prior to Vietnam. But the book resonates because of its graphic and visceral nature. Kovic's writing style is that of a stream of consciousness that deliberately puts the reader inside his mind as things are happening to him. You actually do feel like you're there and you're going through it all. And he structures this particular narrative well by putting us right into the action right away and really letting us know how graphically detailed this is going to be. I have been familiar with Oliver Stone's film going into the book, so I knew a certain amount of Kovic's story, but even I was first surprised by his style and then found myself sucked in as if I didn't know anything at all. And I have to make that distinction because at this point, while I don't think I'm an expert on the Vietnam War, I think I've read enough comics, read enough books, and seen enough movies to know that certain stories or types of stories keep repeating themselves. So to have a book that takes a story that we've seen variations on, both in, in and out of the Vietnam War, and have it seem like a totally fresh and new type of story is the mark of an outstanding book. Kovic's honesty and unwillingness to capitulate to any opposing view or even to objectivity is what makes this particular book a good work. I mentioned prior to reading his introduction that his political views are out front, and I think that what makes that's what makes for a more honest memoir here. It might be because Kovic and I have both supported Democrats for office, and I also have a liberal mindset and political views, so you can take that as you will, I guess. But I think that if you are writing a memoir about something that has so profoundly affected the American psyche, and you're speaking from a genuine experience, the more honest you are with your opinion, the more honest the story will be. Kovic's book did win an acclaim and inspired a number of other stories in media. In 1978, 
Jane Fonda, who is a personal friend of Kovic's, used Born on the Fourth of July as the inspiration for the movie Coming Home, which was directed by Hal Ashby and has a very similar type of storyline, albeit from the point of view of someone other than a soldier, a soldier's wife. Coming home, Fonda plays Sally Hyde, who is the wife of Bob Hyde, a captain in the United States Marine Corps, who's played by Bruce Dern. The film focuses on how Sally spends her time at home during Bob's deployment. She's forced to move off the base and get her own apartment and finds herself feeling more liberated. She also passes her time by volunteering at a VA hospital, and during her time volunteering there, she meets Luke Martin, who's played by John Voigt, and his friend Bill Munson, played by Robert Carradine. Luke is a paraplegic, and he and Sally eventually fall in love and begin a relationship as he heals from his physical injuries. Bill, whose injuries are more mental than physical, eventually commits suicide. The movie then turns to the PTSD that Sally's husband, Bob, suffers after he returns home from the war, something that is compounded by his discovery of the affair that Luke and Sally are having. The film ends with a confrontation wherein Bob confronts Sally and Luke with a rifle before eventually leaving. And we close with Luke speaking to a room full of students about his experiences in Vietnam with, and with Bob folding up his Marine's uniform, taking off his weathering ring, and swimming out naked into the ocean, presumably to commit suicide. Now, that's a very short synopsis of the movie because I'm not spending as much time on it as I'm going to spend on Oliver Stone's adaptation of Born on the Fourth of July. But I did want to mention this because of the way it was inspired by Kovic's book. I'd first heard of it a number of years ago when I read Peter Biskin's book, Easy Riders Raging Bulls. And this is an outstanding account, kind of an inside baseball look at Hollywood in the 70s. That book had more of an inside dirt on the new Hollywood era than it had like of the making of films. So it was a lot of gossip and, and industry stuff. But um, I know that it directly competed with The Deer Hunter for Best Picture as well. Uh, as a number of other Academy Awards. The Deer Hunter, which will be the subject of a future episode, won Best Picture, but Voight and Fonda won Best Actor and Best Actress for their roles in the film, with Christopher Walken beating out Bruce Dern for Best Supporting Actor. Coming Home also won Best Screenplay. And while I'm sure I'll bring this up when I cover The Deer Hunter, the comparison and competition often got political in terms of each film's supposed views or stance, with this being seen as the more, quote, liberal of the two, although I think that might have to do more with the presence of Fonda than anything else. Politics and Hollywood insider stuff aside, it's a good movie. And while it's not as great as a post-war movie as William Wyler's The Best Years of Our Lives, it's an outstanding companion to The Deer Hunter and similar features of this nature. 
Jane Fonda is great in the role of a military wife who begins the movie as a very typical, more conservative-minded woman, but then finds herself feeling more liberated while her husband is away at war. Voight's really solid, although there are times where he's overdoing it or his character does come off as very tropey in a way. Dern is one, Bruce Dern is one of the best parts of the film because he has a hard role to play as someone who's misfunctioning and mentally falling apart, and he manages to bring nuance to that role. It's only by virtue of the fact that Christopher Walken is truly outstanding in The Deer Hunter that Bruce Dern didn't win an Oscar for Coming Home. I would recommend both Kovic's book and Coming Home. Like I said, I spent very little time on it, but I wanted to at least talk about it enough to recommend it. But what about the Oliver Stone movie, which is also a big focus of this episode? Well, I'm going to get to that after the break, and I'm going to play us out with the song Shut Out the Light, which is the song that opened this episode. It's a song that Bruce Springsteen wrote in the 1980s that was inspired by Ron Kovic. It's on his B-Sides box set, Tracks. I should also note that Springsteen wrote the introduction to the 40th anniversary of Born on the Fourth of July in 2016. So here's some of the song, and I'll be right back. Won't you shut out the light? 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 Well, deep in the dark forest, the forest filled with rain. Beyond the strip. The Maryland Pines, there's a river without a name In the cold black water, now Johnson and here stands He stares across to the lights of the city And dreams of where he's been Oh mama, 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 come to wake I got the shakes and I'm gonna be sick Throw your arms around me in the cold dark night Hey now, mama, don't shut out the light Don't you 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 shut out the light were last night. Notably, they were very black. Oh, but can I say that? I think there's a difference between having a point of view and being a partisan. Are we trying to kill him or scare him? Killing is scary. No names, no number, just straight pleasure. No, I don't condone it, but I understand that. Every time I speak, I want the truth to come out. Because it's early on when you make the big mistakes that cost you millions down the road. One of the things that we all have in common is that we all draw a line somewhere. <clears throat> Questions. We don't have answers. It's a podcast dedicated to tackling society's most quizzical queries and persistent problems. Each episode sees host Donovan Morgan Grant. So you're having a non-minority represent a minority and tell the story of a minority but not with an actual minority. And Harrison Chu. Essentially how you can have your cake and eat it too, but I really wish you wouldn't. As they confront questions that afflict our everyday existence, such as, can war end? I don't know. Is there a morality to sexual fantasies? I don't know. When is killing justified? I don't know. Are there things comedians shouldn't joke about? I don't know. Can you be outraged on other people's behalf? I don't know. Nobody knows everything, but everyone knows something. Society's ills will be fought by that society. Become a creative contributor to the show by sending in a question or providing your voice and opinion on an existing episode. People are just so afraid of being thought of as assholes when everybody already thinks of them as assholes. It's amazing. That sounds like a Facebook quote. (laughs) (laughs) Questions will be asked and answers will be questioned. So join Donovan and Harry as they invite you each week for a discussion of questions we don't have answers. We didn't even talk about Japan in this one. I think we did well. (laughs) The show can be found at questionsnoanswers.com on iTunes and right into the show at qnoanswers at gmail.com. I just hope it's not boring to listen to. They're like, oh my god, they're not going anywhere. Truly, they don't have answers. <laughs> well, I can also mention more Star Trek episodes.
I wanted to be a good American. I wanted to serve my country. I couldn't wait to fight my first war. We got him! We got him! Let the word go forth. Daddy, the soldier! The torch has been passed to a new generation of Americans. Your brother's a hard worker, Tommy. Win or lose. School, sports, life. As long as you do your best. That's what matters to God. First off, young men, let's get one thing straight. There is nothing prouder as a United States Marine. Our dad's got to go to WW2. This is our chance to do something. You should think about what you're doing. You could get yourself killed. Did you ever think about that? Please help me, Jesus. Help me to make the right decision. Sometimes I just like to stay here and never leave. But I gotta go. 13,000 miles. It's a long way to go to fight a war. Don't you know what it means to me to be a Marine, Dad? Ever since I was a kid, I've wanted this. I wanted to serve my country. I want to go to Vietnam. I'll die there if I have to. There's something happening here. You gotta try and stay alive, it's okay? You hear me? Exactly clear. Chicago has an Alice in Wonderland quality about it. Things are getting curiouser and curiouser. Come on, get up there, get up there. Keep going, keep going, come on. Honey, stop. Children, watch that sound. Everybody look what's going down. There's battle lines being drawn. Nobody's right if everybody's right. Young people speak in their mind. Are getting so much resistance from behind. Can you find a way to stop? Hey, what's that sound? Everybody look And I'm back. So Born on the Fourth of July is the second in an unconnected trilogy of Vietnam films that were directed by Oliver Stone in the 80s and early 90s. The first was Platoon, which I covered all the way back in episode 20 of this podcast. The third was Heaven and Earth, which was released in 1993. 
The film is a direct adaptation of Kovic's memoir and was released on December 20th, 1989. It went on to gross $70 million at the box office. It was the 17th highest grossing film of 1989, coming in right behind the Tom Hanks movie Turner and Hooch. The highest grossing movie of 1989, of course, was Batman, whose total domestic box office is listed as $251 million, according to Box Office Mojo. Born on the 4th of July was nominated for eight Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Screenplay for Stone and Kovic, and Best Actor for Tom Cruise, who played Kovic. It won two of them. Oliver Stone won his won the third of his three Oscars and his second Best Director Oscar, and the movie also won Best Editing. The movie that won Best Picture that year was Driving Miss Daisy, the Jessica Tandy Morgan Freeman film. And I'm going to be a totally lazy podcaster here and grab Wikipedia's plot summary for the movie because for a Wikipedia summary, it's detailed enough but concise. So here we go. The film opens in 1956 in Massapequa, New York, with a 10-year-old Ron Kovic playing with his friends in a forest. On his 4th of July birthday, he attends an Independence Day parade with his family and best friend Donna. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy's televised inaugural address inspires teenage Ron to join the United States Marine Corps. After attending an impassioned lecture by two Marine recruiters visiting his high school, one of which is played by Tom Berenger, who had also been in platoon, he enlists. His decision receives support from his mother but upsets his father, an armed forces veteran. Ron goes to his prom and dances with Donna before leaving for basic training. In October 1967, Ron is now a Marine sergeant on a reconnaissance mission to Vietnam during his second tour of duty. He and his unit kill a number of Vietnamese villagers after mistaking them for enemy combatants. After encountering enemy fire, they flee the village and abandon its sole survivor, a crying baby. During the retreat, Ron accidentally kills Wilson, a young private in his platoon. He reports through the action to his superior, who ignores the claim and advises him not to say anything else. In January of 1968, Ron is critically wounded during a firefight, but is rescued by a fellow Marine. Paralyzed from the mid-chest down, he spends several months in recovery at the Bronx Veterans Hospital in New York. The hospital's conditions are poor. The doctors and nurses ignore patients, abuse drugs, and operate using old equipment. Against his doctor's requests, Ron desperately tries to walk again with the use of braces and crutches. In 1969, Ron returns home permanently requiring the use of a wheelchair. After becoming disillusioned, he resorts to alcohol. During an Independence Day parade, Ron is asked to give a speech, but he's unable to finish. He shows signs of post-traumatic stress disorder when he hears a crying baby in the crowd and has a flashback to Vietnam. Ron visits Donna, who I should mention is played by Kira Sedgwick, in Syracuse, New York, where the two reminisce. While attending a vigil for the victims of the Kent State shootings, they are separated when Donna and other protesters are taken away by police for demonstrating against the Vietnam War. In Massapequa, a drunken Ron has a heated argument with his mother, and his father decides to send him to Mexico. In 1970, Ron arrives in Villa Duce, the Village of the Sun, a Mexican haven for wounded Vietnam veterans. He has his first sexual encounter with a prostitute whom he falls for until he sees her with another customer. Ron befriends Charlie, played by Willem Dafoe, another paraplegic, and the two decide to travel to another village. After annoying their taxicab driver, they are stranded on the side of the road, and argue with each other, they are picked up by a truck driver who takes them back to Villa Duce. Ron travels to Armstrong, Texas, where he discovers Wilson's tombstone. He then visits the fallen soldier's family in Georgia to confess his guilt. Wilson's widow, Jamie, who's played by Lily Taylor, expresses that she is unable to forgive Ron while his parents are more sympathetic. In 1972, Ron joins the organization Vietnam Veterans Against the War and travels to a Republican National Convention in Miami, Florida. As Richard Nixon is giving an acceptance speech for his presidential nomination, Ron expresses to a news reporter his hatred for the war and the government for abandoning the American people. His comments enrage Nixon supporters and his interview is cut short when police attempt to remove and arrest him and other protesters. Ron and the veterans manage to break free from the officers, regroup, and charge the hall again, though not successfully. In 1976, Ron delivers a public address at the Democratic National Convention in New York City following the publication of his autobiography. Like I said, that cover of the plot is thoroughly yet succinctly as I had wanted to when I was writing this episode, so thank you to whomever wrote the summary on the movie's Wikipedia page. 
adaptation of what is in Kovic's book, and as much as I'm not always the biggest fan of Oliver Stone, his style of filmmaking actually fits Kovic's style, tone, and the mood he creates in the book very well. This was the period where Stone was riding a pretty big high. He'd go on to make The Doors, JFK, and Natural Born Killers after this. Each of those has both straightforward storytelling and some rather surreal, even trippy moments, especially Natural Born Killers. Since this book is also surreal at times, that matches, although I can tell you that there are moments where Oliver Stone is clearly being a little too Oliver Stone, for at least for my taste. The scenes in the hospital, which Kovic had described in graphic detail in a way that I don't think I was expecting. Then again, my experience with hospital scenes of that nature was China Beach, and that was a television show, not an R-rated movie. He does play with the color palette as well, giving us an almost sepia-toned view of Kovic's childhood, as well as a reflection of the desert colors during the time when he is in Mexico with Charlie. That's one thing, by the way, that I noticed and watched this movie uh, and made the inevitable comparisons to Coming Home, which it inspired. Coming Home was in a shot in a way that was very... Well, straightforward. I mean, the costumes, hair, and sets were made to look like the 60s and early 70s. And the movie was not, but the movie was not oversaturated with like a particular color scheme or was, it wasn't made to look too deliberate. Here, Stone is going for things that distinctly stylized. Uh, they're, they're distinctly stylized with both a positive and a negative tone. And I know that movies in the 1970s had that same sense. Hell, Apocalypse Now is literally the product of Fan- Francis Ford Coppola's fever dreams, and that shows it. But the huge shift towards style that we saw in tentpole movies, courtesy of films like made by like Jerry Bruckheimer and Don Simpson, is evident even in more serious films like this. This feels bigger than Coming Home did. Speaking of which, this is coming a couple of years after two of Stone's more iconic movies, Platoon and Wall Street. So he definitely had his Hollywood clout, and he could get someone on the level of Tom Cruise to play the starring role. Cruise had just come off a string of hits, Top Gun, The Color of Money, Cocktail, and Rain Man, and then he'd follow this up with Days of Thunder. And this is one of a number of serious movies he would mix in with summer blockbuster fare. I think that at the time I was honestly surprised that he did not win Best Actor. Um, He lost to Daniel Day-Lewis for My Left Foot because he got an enormous amount of critical acclaim for his performance. I can see where that acclaim comes from. Uh, There are also times when it's hard to separate Tom Cruise from the role he's in, even if he's dressed down and made to look rather beaten up and badly injured, though. That's not to say that he's bad in this movie in any way, because it's his job to carry it, and he does a very good job of it. There are just times when he puts what he puts into the scene is what I see him put into a number of other roles, especially from around this time, and Willem Dafoe is kind of the same way. But overall, Stone and Cruz have that tough job of telling a story with a huge amount of scope, from the suburbs to Vietnam and back, and then to Mexico, and through this man's physical and mental ordeal. And they do it well. There are a few scenes that did stick out to me, and I'll talk about them here. One is the hospital scene, mainly because, like I said, Stone has a movie with an R rating and decided not to hold back. He goes for a graphic depiction of injuries and bodily malfunctioning, and I don't know if I've actually ever seen these in a movie. Two others are the Independence Day Parade and the scene at what is either a bar or a VFW hall where Ron gets into arguments with vets from other wars, something I've seen at play occasionally on other TV shows and in movies. The idea that veterans from from different wars look upon their experiences differently, or even that they look down upon those who are younger than they are. If I recall correctly, there are a couple of scenes like this in some later episodes of Mad Men, and while I don't mean to sound offensive by saying that, I think it's refreshing to see such scenarios. In fact, I think that entire films like this one do a good job to show the average person what people who return home from a war might really be going through. Now, everybody's experience is different, But what Kovic does in this book is shed much needed light on the situation. What Stone does a decade and a half later is bring that light back at a time where there had been so many movies about the war and so many high-powered action movies that I think it was very possible for messages about post-war experiences to get lost in that huge shuffle. In fact, I don't know if there are that many high-profile movies about Vietnam to come out after, say, Born of the Fourth of July, at least not as many as there were made before it. You have the Mel Gibson film Air America, Flight of the Intruder, Forrest Gump, and another 
Gibson film in 2002 called We Were Soldiers. So this really does start to mark the end of an era in film, or at least the beginning of the end of an era. I'd recommend watching this. I will say that while I did enjoy it, I do find Platoon to be a better film. And as I write this, I have to wonder what this movie would have been like with, say, Gary Sinise in Cruz's place. Because as much as I really am not a huge fan of Forrest Gump, I find that Sinise is the best part of that movie. He's absolutely flawless as Lieutenant Dan. And I wrote about Forrest Gump on the Pop Culture Affidavit blog back in 2014, so if you're interested, you can check out my thoughts there. But as far as Born on the Fourth of July is concerned, I hope it, I hope I did both the book and the film justice in my coverage. It's out on DVD and Blu-ray, I believe. You can stream it on Amazon through rental for $2.99 as of when I'm recording this. I don't believe it's available on Netflix at the moment. I can't tell you about other streaming services, but that $2.99 is not a steep rental price, so stream it when you can get the chance if you're interested. Next time, I'm going to be bringing us back to the comic with issue number 79, and that's the first part of a three-part Tet Offensive storyline. I'll also be looking at the Punisher War Journal number 53, as well as historical context for January through March of 1973. We're getting close to the end, people. I've got ten episodes and a wake-up. So until then, you can follow me on Twitter at PopAff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F, and as always, thanks for listening, and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of In Country. All stories and characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and all other media referenced are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com, and you can follow the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. Show notes and extras can be found at popcultureaffidavit.com. This podcast is a proud part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which is a division of the Demanzacore of Milan, Italy. Please support this podcast and all the other Two True Freaks podcasts by using the Amazon.com link at twotruefreaks.com anytime you shop. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening, and join me next time for the latest chapter in the saga of The Nom.